0: Let's take our Bibles this morning, if you would, please, and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And uh, I'm going to read the first 24 verses of this text. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I, will have, on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Last communion service, we commenced a new series, if you were with us at that time, which I entitled, A Glossary of Glorious Terms. It's an exciting subject. We're going to look through a whole uh, range and gamut of glorious terms used in the Bible. And last time we looked at the word atonement, and that was a precious study, certainly for me. This morning we continue in our study of glorious terms, and we come to the word election. And I must admit I thought it was interesting how the Lord worked all that together considering yesterday was election day, and I did this a long time ago, that the plan. So it's funny how the Lord works all things together like that. This particular subject uh, has been a hot potato for Christianity for centuries. I want to say that up front. And I also want to say that sadly, an enormous amount of damage has been done to the name of Jesus Christ because of the infighting, because of the slander, because of character assassinations that have taken place because of this very heated discussion. This ought not to be the case. This ought never to be the case on any subject whereby people are fighting and bringing disrepute to the name of Christ. This morning... What I'd like to do is present a series of questions and answers uh, on this important topic. Now, I want to say at the forefront a couple of things. First of all, I have an incredibly limited amount of time to cover what is an incredibly great subject. So we need to understand that. So no doubt at the end of this there will be probably more questions. At the end of this there will be more discussion to be had, more thought, more meditation to... Uh, to consider and and more time spent study. So I want to encourage you to talk to me afterwards if you have some questions so that I can clarify, expand, develop and so forth. The other thing I want to say at the forefront, which is unusual perhaps for some preachers, is I do not have the answers to all of the questions that we are going to have. The answer to a lot of these questions is only God knows. So I'm not afraid or ashamed to say that. I can study for hours and hours and hours and still come up with one answer, and that is, I don't know how it all works. And I'm quite prepared to say that this morning when it comes to many, many things. What I want to do this morning is I want to ask some questions, answer some questions, and just simply provide some biblical truth from the Scriptures without an enormous amount of application. Simply the truth that is seen in the light of Scripture. That's what we want to do because we want to be Bible students. We don't want to be necessarily trying to interpret everything in the Scriptures because we'll get some of that wrong. But we want to know what the Scriptures say so that we can meditate and think and pray and consider where our response to it all is. So we've read Romans 9, 1 to 24. I want to preach a message entitled A Glossary of Glorious Terms Part 2 The Subject of Election. Heavenly Father, I recognize this morning that uh, this particular subject uh, has been the cause of great division over many, many years with many, many people. And Lord, I so do not want that to be the case here. Uh, Lord, I pray that that which is shared and that which has been studied out and that which is taught in your word would come forth. Anything, O Lord, that is not correct, that is not true, uh, Lord, we pray that it would fall to the ground and perish, that it would not be remembered. But that which is right, that which is correct, that which uh, exemplifies and elevates the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, that is what we want. That is what we desire. And so, Lord, help us today as we consider this incredible topic. This is the topic that so many Puritans over the years would weep about as they would consider the reality that God should save sinners. Lord, may that move and motivate us more than anything else, that God would choose to rescue people such as us. That alone, that thought ought to humble us, ought to bring us to a place of resonant praise, of joy, thankfulness. May all of that be a reality as a result of this message. Before we come around the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question one, why should Christians study and understand the doctrine of election? That's a good question. Why should we even bother? Here's a few answers for you, and let me say, by way of introduction here, we're going to ask a few questions and answers to start with here, and then we're going to turn to some passages of Scripture. But there's a few questions. Why should Christians study and understand the doctrine of election? Here's a few reasons. Number one, because it's in the Bible. Because it's in the Bible. And Paul tells us, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. So why should a Christian study this subject? Well, because it's in the word of God. Now, I know a lot of people who would like us to think that it's not really there. So we'll just sort of, we'll just sort of go around this subject. And we won't even talk about it. We'll just, we'll just let it be over there. That's a subject we don't really want to talk about. So we'll go around it. Well, not here. Because it's in there. And the Bible tells us we need to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, understand the counsel of Scripture, and uh, exegete its truth. So it's in the Bible. Number two, why should we study this doctrine of life? Because it's theological. That is, it speaks about the character and the nature and the ways of God. And Paul tells us in Colossians 1 verse 12 that we should be increasing in the knowledge... Of God, So when we come to this subject of election that deals with how God works in things, though we may not fully understand it, we should study it because it gives us insight into his character. And that's our job, is it not, as Christians, to understand our God better and better, even though we realise we'll never fully comprehend him. Thirdly, because it is central to the gospel message. This matter of election is central to... To the gospel message, and we'll see that in a little while. Fourth, because it clarifies our identity and purpose as believers. I'm someone who really appreciates purpose, I'm someone who appreciates identity. I want to know who I am, why I'm here, and what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to know because that governs my life, and this matter of election is central to that truth. Who I am? What am I supposed to be doing? Why, God, did you put me here on earth? Those questions are all connected to this matter of election. Then we also see that we should study and understand this doctrine of election because it alters our view and work of evangelism in the world. Because it alters our view and work of evangelism In the world. Now, I probably shouldn't do this, I should continue in my notes, but I'm just going to quickly make this comment at the very forefront so that it is so clear in case you drift off later on. This discussion surrounding election that I'm going to share today does not in any way stop or negate our responsibility to preach the gospel. Okay, That's just there. I'm just putting that in now, just in case later on, you know, it gets a bit warm in here and we drift off and we miss some stuff. OK, so that's really important. But it does alter our view and the work of evangelism God has given us to do. And then lastly, why should we study this subject? Because it promotes greater dependence upon God. And you'll see that it promotes greater dependence on God. Anything that will promote greater dependence upon God is a good subject because he's called us to be dependent. There's some reasons. There's many more. There's some. Question two. So that's why Christians should study. Why don't Christians study this doctrine of election? Here's a few for you. And these are non-biblical reasons. These are just general reasons. Well, for one... It's controversial and uncomfortable. Okay, You talk to people about this, you talk about the discussions that have been had. It's controversial and it's uncomfortable, or it can be. Because in studying this, it will bring about change. Now, we as human beings, generally, we don't mind change if they're things that we want to change. But if change happens to us as a result of something, we are often uncomfortable with that that's second because it will bring about change thirdly because we by nature are lazy and this particular study of the character of god and all that is involved in it takes time and hard work digging in the scriptures if we're honest perhaps there's many of us perhaps in this very room that are satisfied with our daily bread devotionals if i may say that but these are the weightier matters that you know what I just don't have time for it. I'm not going to dig into that. Let me just stay on my shallow plane of spiritual existence. Fourthly, why don't Christians study the doctrine of election? Because it doesn't fit into our logical framework. This matter of election, doesn't, this doesn't work in my mind. I want it to work. I want it all in a little pigeonhole so it all works perfectly for me, exactly the way that I want it. And what I find in Scripture is what God loves to do is to blow apart our pigeonhole theology. He loves to take himself out of the box and destroy everything that's holding the box together. Because what we want to do is say, aha, we've got God figured out here. But when we study this subject, it does blow apart much of our logical framework. Human logic, that is. Fifthly, and this is a big one, why don't Christians study the doctrine of election? It places limitations on us. Now, here's what we know about mankind. None of us like limitations. None of us like to be uh, compressed into a particular way. We, we don't want to be limited. We think, we think that we have power. We think we have free will. We think we have all of that. And some of that is true in one sense. But, but anything that stops that, anything that stifles my desires and my goals, causes us to get a little bit concerned. And this doctrine limits us. Why don't Christians study the doctrine of election? Because it modifies our understanding of God. When we come to understand who God is in this subject of election, it changes so much of how we view things. And again, we don't like change. We don't like having our God necessarily change. We're happy with the God we've set up as opposed to the God we read of in the Bible quite often. And then lastly... This is probably a big one, too. Why don't Christians study the doctrine of election? Because we are satisfied with a shallow understanding of God and his word. I remember having this discussion many, many years ago before the Lord changed my heart on a number of things, even on this very subject with someone. And I wasn't sure what I believed at the time, or I thought I knew what I believed at the time. And the summary of that response from that person when that uh, discussion came up was... I don't need to talk about this. I'm happy with my simple Christianity. Now, I I appreciate simple Christianity, but we are called to study the word. We're called to know our God. We're called to grow in our understanding of him. And so for me to simply put my feet up and say, I am satisfied with my limited knowledge of God. I'm not pursuing anything more. This is all I want to do. That shows that's a commentary on our own heart rather than our God, because that says It's okay. It's enough that Jesus died for my sins. That's all I want to know. Now, that's a wonderful truth to know. But friends, it doesn't stop there. There is so much more to learn about our God and the character of our God, which is supposed to be the pursuit of our life. That's why I believe many Christians don't study the doctrine of election. Third question. And this one you don't have to take notes on because it's a personal testimony. Why is this subject so important to me? Now, I normally don't do this in preaching. I normally don't provide my own thoughts on this. But I just want to share why I want to share all of this with you today. Why is this subject so important to me? Because for 10 years of my life, I vehemently opposed and preached against what I'm going to share with you today. And God, in his graciousness and mercy, changed my heart. And he showed me more of his character and the Holy Spirit taught me through the pages of the word of God that I would see it differently. And that amazes me. That amazes me that I would go to a place where I would be preaching so vehemently uh, against the things that I'm going to say for so many years. And yet God in his graciousness would say, I'm going to change your heart because it's softened towards me now. I'm going to show you a different way and that he would permit me even to stand up here to do so. That amazes me. That is one reason. Secondly, because this subject has revolutionized my understanding of God, the gospel and the ministry of evangelism. Today, as I stand before you, my understanding of God has changed so much in such wondrous ways. My understanding of service and ministry and motive for it and preaching the gospel is greater than it's ever been because of how God has changed this. Now there's a faulty view that exists out there that when we delve into this subject that this is somehow going to cause us to become lethargic and put our feet up. That is not true. I stand before you as a testimony of that truth, that that is not true. And there are many over the years that can testify through their life too. Why is this subject so important to me? Number three, because all of my motives and my methodologies for service have changed because of this truth. See, I used to feel compelled, not by the Spirit of God, but by men, to go and preach the gospel because it was what I had to do. You know, it it was good for the church. I would stand on the corners and I would hand out tracts. And in my heart, I would be thinking, I don't want to be here, but better do it, because you know, that's what the church says we better do. And and there would be men and wi- there'd be men and women in different sessions and seminars that would tell us throughout the years, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, and so on. And so I would just, hey, let's go do this, because that's what you're supposed to do. But what happened when my heart changed towards all this, my motive changed in that now it was about what God wanted me to do, and not what man wanted me to do. It was about the fact that there was a motive to please God, rather than follow all these different rules and regulations, because that Honored the Lord when it doesn't. When my relationship with Christ and God primarily becomes the motive. And that's what happened as I studied these truths out. And then, lastly, for me personally, and this is so rich, why is this subject so important to me? Because there is such joy. There is such freedom in knowing that I am not responsible to produce converts but simply to preach the gospel and leave it to God's power. See, here's the problem. Over the years, I have compelled, manipulated, emotionally moved people to get out of their seats to walk down an aisle and make a faulty profession in the name of Jesus Christ to walk out emptier than they ever came in because I had got them to the truth. That's not the way God works. God calls us to be ambassadors for Christ, to tell the truth of the gospel, and then let the power of God change the life in that person. And Paul says, I've renounced all of these wicked, manipulative ways. I'm not seeking to dishonestly or craftily make people believe. I preach it in power and leave the work to God. That is so refreshing. That is so refreshing. To know that he's in control. And it has changed my life. It's changed my ministry. It's changed my evangelism. It's changed every part of my character. Such joy and freedom in leaving the work with God, but faithfully fulfilling the responsibility. That's why it's so important to me. Fourth question. Now we get into it. That was all introductory. What is the doctrine of election? You say, well, I don't even know what you're talking about yet. Well, here we go. This is what it is. What is the doctrine of election? Here, the word election in the Bible means precisely what you did yesterday if you went and uh, voted. It means to pick out. It means to select. It means to appoint. To choose. And you know what I think is so interesting? This is one of the most uncomplicated words in the whole Bible that has resulted in one of the most complicated concepts in all of history. This word, literally, you can't change it. It means pick out, it means choose, it means select, like what we do every single day of our life, day-to-day things. That's what it means. Uncomplicated, simple. And it's used in a variety of contexts in the New Testament. It's used in day-by-day choice-making. Just, I'm going to choose to do this. I'm not going to choose to do that. I'm going to choose to do this. Interestingly, it's used by God the Father in choosing His Son to be the Redeemer we find that in Luke 9:35 it's used when Jesus selected his disciples same word and when they selected apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 2 and 24 and Acts chapter 9 and verse 15 and then in John 15:15 15, 15, the Lord Jesus said i have chosen you you didn't choose me i chose you that you should go and bring forth fruit that's precisely the same word i chose you but where it becomes sticky Where it becomes problematic for many people is that the same word is used in relation to choosing individuals for salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, James chapter 2 and verse 5, and a myriad of other places in the scriptures. Now, we get very concerned potentially by that concept. And I don't want us to. I don't want us to enter that immediately and think, oh, no, hang on, put the brakes on here. We come to the discussion about how a person's salvation interacts with God's election of them. Now, there's two schools of thought in theology, and I put them on the board for you. All right, so when you walked in this morning, you thought, what in the world's going on? Nobody left. That was good. So here they are. There are two two schools of thought. One is what we call conditional election, and one is what we call unconditional election. I don't want to make this highly academic or over the top or anything, but I just want to present just two schools of thought. Now, conditional election. This refers to the belief that God elects people for salvation based upon his foreknowledge. By the way, what I'm saying here may not be exactly what's up there. That was just a simplified version on that whiteboard. Okay. Let me say it again. Conditional election refers to the belief that God elects people for salvation based upon his foreknowledge of who will put their faith in Christ. Here's what this means. In other words, before the world and people existed, God peered down the corridor of time and looked at those who would select him, who would choose to believe in his son and therefore elected them. We would call that passive. Okay, Down the bottom there, the emphasis. The emphasis there is God's election of individuals is activated by man's free free choice. And God is passive. He looks down. He sees what they're going to do. And as a result, then elects them. Make sense? That position. Okay. Then we have another school of thought, which is called unconditional election. Before I do that, let me just say, conditional election... Okay, where God looks down the corridors of time and selects those who would select him. This means that the emphasis is on man's free will to choose God and assumes that man can do that. Is that fair? It assumes that man is able to choose God of his own will as opposed to being unable, unable. Okay. Again, I've got so much to say and so little time. I can see Karch up the back there going, what in the world is going on here? Okay, One more time, let me just explain this so we're clear. Conditional means it has conditions attached, right? So that simply means this, that God looks, man uh, in his uh, ability chooses God, and God says, therefore you chose me, I will elect you even before the time. Okay. Now, on unconditional election, the other side is this. This is the belief that God, in eternity past, before we were in existence, selected individuals to be the objects of his grace, unmerited, and brought into motion a plan to redeem those ones. This divine choice is not made based upon the recipient's. It's not based upon how good those people are. God does not look ahead in this position and say, well, they're going to be good Christians, I'm going to select them. Okay? All that this position holds to is that God chose of his free will for his divine purpose, and we don't even know why. Except that it's for his glory. Okay. So the emphasis here is God's election on the right hand side is entirely based upon his own character and glory. And this is God active. The other was passive. Are most people following me? I hope so. Okay, Because this is critical to the questions we're going to ask in a minute. They're the two schools of thought. Now, I'm not going to get into the subject of whether election is actually in the Bible. We're going to assume that it is, because it is. Okay? It's all over the place. Since election is a biblical doctrine, we have to say then, what is the basis of God's electing? Here's the question. Is it based upon foreknowledge of a future action, the left-hand side, or is it the sovereign choice of God? That's the ultimate question we have to ask in this subject. And you say are we getting anywhere? We are. Okay, we're going to get somewhere really wonderful in just a few minutes. To answer this question whether it's foreknowledge or sovereign choice, we have to ask some other questions. Is question five for us this morning. Can man of his own will choose God? Would you agree that's the question that answers whichever way we head down the path here? Now, D.L. Moody, who most of us would be familiar with that name, this is what he said. God chose me for himself, but the devil also chose me for himself. My choice is the tiebreaker. Okay? So Dale Moody says, God chose me for himself. Satan chose me for himself. And now the tiebreaker is decided by me. Which way will I go? Now there's some problems with that theology and we're going to look at that in a moment. Okay? To suggest that God's choice is bound by human will and that man has the ability to choose God is the question we need to ask. Is it correct? Can man in his own fallen sinful state choose God? Now, nobody asked that, but I'm going to say, what a great question to ask. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. As we answer, can man of his own will choose God? And while you're turning there, I just want to reemphasize the fact that what we're talking about here is not something that you share in your evangelism. Okay, You don't go to someone when you are witnessing and sharing your faith with them and say, now listen, I'm not really sure, are you an elect or are you not an elect? Because it's not worth me talking to you. <laughs> please don't go anywhere near any, please, I beg of you. And if there are those who this morning know not the Lord Jesus Christ, we're getting to a point in here where I want to confront you with the gospel message. If this is overly confusing, then my prayer is that God would clarify, because I don't want this to be confusing. But I do want to know the God who does this, and we're on our journey there. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 begins with but. I love that verse 4 begins with but. But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Verse 1 gives us a clue. Dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says, prior to you being born again, prior to you, church at Ephesus here, before you ever understood the mystery of the gospel message, before you ever took hold of that truth, you were dead. You were dead. He says it twice. He says it in verse 1 and then in verse 5. So in summary, outside of Jesus Christ... Every person is in the spiritual morgue. Now we're moving around physically, but we are dead, spiritually dead. We're not walking around spiritually. We're not limping around spiritually. We don't have a little spark of uh, divine existence. That's not what We, we are dead," Paul says. And if that's not sufficient for us, we need to understand that we are corpses without any spiritual life or inclination towards God. Now, this is really important because when we come to preach the gospel, we need to realize that we are preaching to dead men. We are preaching to dead men. The message we have is alive and the message that we have is able to bring about someone's salvation, the Bible says, but that is not because of that person, but because of God who opens the eyes and the hearts of lost people. Paul says this, we don't have time to turn there, but in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul says, no one understands, no one seeks God. No one. It's not some do, some don't. It's that nobody, the whole of creation is groaning under sin and the the creation is dead in sin. The human is dead in sin. Nothing within that human, wants anything to do with God. Jesus said this, note this verse, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. So let me say this, if you came to Christ, it was not because in you... There was a decision that was made initially. Obviously you believed and repented of the gospel, that's true. But you came because you were drawn by the cords of love by the Father in order to believe in the Son. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, carnal, in this world, is hostile towards God, alienated, excuse me, because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It is an impossibility for a dead person to submit to the law of God, even though they might obey it from an external perspective. Ephesians 4.18 says this, They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, again, we don't have the time to do this, but let me just summarize this and encourage you to do this yourself. When we do a, a thorough study in the Word of God on the doctrine of sin, okay, when we go right through this book and we look at sin, this is what we find the sinner is dead, the sinner is lost, the sinner is bound. The sinner is without hope. The sinner is without light. And the sinner is incapable of spiritual change unless a quickening, a making alive, is produced in them by the Holy Spirit. One commentator writes this, In this state of death, the sinner is utterly unable to respond to any spiritual stimulus and therefore unable to love God. Unable to obey him. Unable to please him in any way. So what does that mean? That means that at best, in a sinful state, in a dead state, we make reforms in life. Some of you might recall, before you were saved, you made reforms. You made changes. You may have given up this or given up that. But the reality of it was, they were reforms at best. But true illumination, regeneration, life, came as a work that was initiated And accomplished entirely by God on behalf of you. You couldn't do it. And some of you can testify to the fact that within your heart, there was a a beginning to soften. Now, some people were were converted in an instant in uh, perhaps a church service like this when they heard the word of God and it, it quickened and made them alive. Other people can talk about a time in their life where they began to feel the cords of love beginning to woo them towards the truth of God. And it was a process of time, a process of illumination, until at one point after the Holy Spirit had accomplished that work to draw them, they trusted in Christ finally, and they can say, Hallelujah, I remember that portion of my life. Some of you know that. I've heard your testimonies. That there is the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing you to the Father. Now, I want to say very carefully and quickly here, What I am teaching here this morning in no way dismisses the individual responsibility of every person to repent and believe the gospel. But what I am saying is that that comes after the Holy Spirit has illuminated us to the truth that is in Christ. Now you say, hang on a second, what does that mean? That means that you didn't begin the work. That's all. That's what it means. It means that you couldn't do it on your own. It happened because God did it in you first and you responded to his call. Now, some people say, I found Jesus. That's not really true. Jesus found you. And in response to him finding you, you trusted in him. So we've answered, perhaps, the question, can man of his own free will choose God? And the answer is no. I believe the answer is no. If man cannot choose God while dead to sin, then the concept of God peering down the corridors of time and looking at a person's response and then electing them is erroneous. You agree with that? You understand what I'm saying there? If, if man can't choose, then God didn't look down and say, well, they're going to choose of their own free will. That whole doctrine, that whole left side is erroneous. Therefore, we must affirm here this morning that God's election is not based upon man's free will, but according to his divine purpose, the right side. Now, a lot of people at this point start to, uh, you know, curl up and, and and get a bit tight fisted and think, hang on, you're stealing my free will. No, you never had it in the fullness of the sense of free will. So here's the real question, which is our sixth question. Now, I feel like we all need to stretch, stand up and get ourselves together here because this is really the question. That was all really just to get us to where we are here. This is the question. What does the Bible teach about sovereign election? And I have almost no time, but I have quite a bit in front of me here. Romans 9. Let's go back to the text we read. And now we'll begin our message. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> what does the Bible teach about this matter of sovereign election? First thing I want you to note, and um, I don't want to scare you, but there's 15. Okay, there's 15 and we're going to fly through them. Sovereign election. What does the Bible teach about sovereign election? Number one, sovereign election is not injustice on the part of God. Everybody get that? It's not. You say, where? Okay, let's look at verse 14 of chapter 9. I don't have the time to take us through the whole text, but let's just look here. The previous verse says, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. And we we can look at that and wonder what that all means. And uh, perhaps another time we'll cover that fully. But verse 14, as a response to that, this is what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, that question is filled with truth, because we know full well, don't we, that Paul is not saying there is injustice on the part of God. Sovereign election is not injustice. But in our human minds, we say that's not fair. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we are right and God is unjust? Well, it it can't. Because God is the very definition of justice. So what it must mean is that in my human understanding of how this all works, obviously my thinking is warped because God is just. We begin with the premise of who God is and the reality is God is always good. God is always just. God always does what is right. So if my question comes up like Paul's here, and he is already as a wonderful lawyer bringing questions to light, if we say, is God unjust? Then we've missed the whole thing. Because Paul says, God is not unjust. Our understanding of how this works is obviously wrong. So if you sit this morning and think, this matter of sovereign election, that just doesn't seem just. Paul answers that question right here. Obviously our justice system is incorrect. Ours, personally, because God is just. And yet God has elected sovereignly. Secondly, sovereign election... And mercy is God's supreme right. Sovereign election and mercy is God's supreme right. Look at verse 15, if you will. And this verse is very confronting. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable? If God is God, then by definition, he has the right to do as he will. Is that fair? The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You see, what we want to do is we want to compartmentalize God and say, God, you have to work on my terms. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And he doesn't say it like you and I would say, well, I'll have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. God says, as sovereign king, just God over all the earth for my divine purposes, I will have mercy where I want to have mercy. I will do what is right all the time, he says. I have power over the clay. I made the clay. I'm the God who created. If I created this, I own this. This is mine. I can do with it as I please. See, what we don't like is we don't like being enslaved. We don't like being owned. We don't like the fact that someone else is in control because by nature, our sinful flesh says, I am the master of my own destiny. In sovereign election, we say, God, you are in control. Number three, sovereign election. Election is independent of man. Romans 9 verse 16. So then it, God's mercy and his selection, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I love this verse. I love this verse. This verse is a cornerstone verse for me now because it's not about your human will. It's not about your might and your effort and your trying and your and, and your work. The Bible says, but on God who has mercy. And that is wonderfully freeing because it takes from me all the burden of seeking to bring people in and try so hard when it's not about my human exertion But about God who has mercy. Again, don't misunderstand that to mean that I don't have a responsibility. I do. Absolutely I do. But it means that the work is not accomplished by me. I can sleep at night knowing God is in control. You know what this means practically for some of us who have family members who are unsaved and we wonder about these things and and we hope these things aren't true sometimes in our flesh because we think, oh, how is this all going to work? I can sleep at night because I rest in God and His mercy rather than my effort to try and try and try and beg and plead and nothing's happening because it's a dead corpse and I'm waving my hands in front of people's faces and trying to get them to see the truth. Whereas when I understand that I am to be faithful to the task of, Preaching the gospel, and it's God who will have mercy. It is God who will do a work if He so sees fit. And because I love and trust Him above those family members or those friends, I can rest in this glorious truth and sleep at night knowing God is in control. That's a wondrous truth, that's a cornerstone truth for us. As we think through these things, I want you to see forcefully: sovereign election and the hardening of hearts is about God's glory. Sovereign election and the hardening of hearts is about God's glory. Verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, God raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens. Whomever he wills. You say that's a hard truth. It is a hard truth in one sense, but it's a wondrous truth too, in that God, again, is sovereign in all of this, and he will do what he wants to do. And he set Pharaoh up for such a time as that in Egypt, and it was to demonstrate his glory, and God hardened his heart. And we look at that and we say, How could God do that? You have a problem with your justice system. God's in control. God owns Pharaoh. God can do whatever he wants. He's not bound by your theology. He's bound by his own character. And we don't fully understand it. And so when we look at people and we see that their hearts are being hardened, either by themselves or by supernatural divine appointment by God, we can rejoice in the fact that God is working for his glory. He's doing something here that I can't see and understand, but it's for his own glory. fifthly sovereign election is ultimately irresistible Romans 9 and verse 19 Paul again takes this place of a lawyer here and he says you will say to me then after all of this why does he still find fault God can't find fault then if he's hardening people that's not fair that's not you'll say that he says and we will won't we and then he says for who can resist his will It's a very important question in the Scriptures. When it comes to God and his sovereign will, no man can resist the sovereign, decretive will of God that is going to be done. We have a number of different wills in the Bible as it relates to God, and we understand that probably to some degree. We need to understand if God has chosen, which he has, then those who have been chosen will respond in time to the gospel and be saved. And when every single person within that body of the elect from every tribe, nation and tongue are finally brought into God's kingdom, the end of time is here. Jesus will return. That is then when we will be with him in glory, when all of the elect have come in together. But it is ultimately irresistible. Now, many of us can testify to our own lives where we've heard the gospel preached and we've said, no, 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 no. And we have resisted it. But ultimately, God has moved upon our will to bring it into conformity with his own. That's how we got here. And many of us can say, I walked out of that church building when I heard that preaching the first time. And I said, I'm never going back to church ever again. And yet some of you are here saved by the blood of the lamb. How did that happen? Well, it's not because of you. It's because God continued to move upon your heart and woo you to himself. Should have made this an afternoon service as well. Number six, sovereign election demotes man and promotes God. There's one reason I love this doctrine. It demotes man and it promotes God. Verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But, Paul says, who are you? Oh man, in other words, who do you think you are that you would answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? This is the same thing that happened in Job. You remember Job at the end of that uh, wonderful portion of scripture there in Job 38, 39, 40 and 41. All these questions are asked of Job. Who do you think you are? And at the end of it, Job says, I am nothing. I am absolutely nothing. I realize I repent in ashes, here in dust. And that's the point of this very text. Who are you, O man, to try to answer to God's? Sovereign will. Why? Who are you to try and understand? If you could understand this, Paul says in in a paraphrase here, you would be God. If you could figure this all out, you would be God. But you don't have the mind of God. It demotes man, promotes God. Number seven, again, we'll have to go through these. You have to study these out yourself. Sovereign election means that God has absolute authority. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? At the end of the day, does God not have supreme authority? Is he not in charge? Is this not all about him? The answer is yes. This salvation is his. He was the one who began it. He's the one who's going to conclude it. We, we are the, the blessed recipients of this salvation, but it's his. Of course he's in control of it. Of course he has authority. How dare we think for a moment that we have some kind of authority in this? This is God, and he owns those who he created. Number eight, sovereign election took place before the foundation of the world and results in glory. Before the foundation of the world and results in glory. Now, here we are not saying God peers down the corridors of time and then selects. By the way, I know I shouldn't deviate from what's in front of me here, but let me just say this. Another reason why this left view is incorrect is if we think that God peers down the corridors of time, we don't understand the fact that He exists outside of time. Everything is an ever-present in the nature of God. The theology of His immutability, His omnipresence and His omnipotence is not that, uh, and His omniscience is not that He goes, Ah, I better look forward, now I'll come back. Okay, God doesn't work linear time like us. God is outside of time. He created time. So he doesn't go, oh yeah, now over there. There's Daniel Chris. Here it is. Uh, 1989. I'm going to select him because he chose me. That's not he- ever present with God. He's outside of time and space. So our theology is wrong on the left hand side. Let's continue. Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Before time began, God chose sovereignly for his own purpose that would result in his own glory. His own glory. Number nine. I'm not going to have the time to give you these, uh, to look at all of these. I'm just going to have to read them to you. We're not going to be able to look at the passages. Number nine. Sovereign election in no way negates the individual responsibility to repent and believe the gospel. Acts 17.30 tells us that. 2 Peter 3.9 1 Thessalonians 1.9 also tells us that. Here's what we're saying here this morning is that sovereign election does not mean that a human being just gets to coast through life and doesn't have to make a decision for Christ. That's not what we're saying. We're saying as a result of God's choosing and his wooing and his divine influence upon the will, then that person in response to that will believe and will trust and believe the gospel, repent of sin. Because we know that without... Without repentance, there's no salvation. Without believing in Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross of Calvary. And that might be you here this morning. Without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only person in all of history who can remove your sin and place you into the divine family of God, without believing that, without turning from sin, no man will ever be saved. And so I implore you today, based on this very doctrine, to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. To turn from your sin and know what it is to have sins forgiven. And if you do that, you do that because the Spirit of God is working in you, not because some preacher has commanded you to do it. But that's the message of the gospel. Number 10 sovereign election humbles the believer. I literally bathe in this truth, I would think, on a daily basis. Because here's what I have come to realise. I know something about my own heart. I know something about my desperate wickedness, the evil that resides within that none of you see. You know your own hearts like that. And this is what amazes me. The mystery of election is not whether God foreknew me, but rather that he did and yet chose me. Here is what blows my mind. Here is what humbles me day by day is that he chose me knowing full well what I'm like. Knowing full well that there is nothing in me that is of any good or value to him. That humbles me. And that causes me incredible joy, inexpressible joy, Paul says. I can't believe that God would choose me to be his own because I know what I'm like. Sometimes, when I, and sometimes when I'm in a bad place before the Lord, I sometimes say, God, is there something wrong with you? Why on earth would you choose? I know what, don't you know, maybe God isn't omniscient sometimes, I think, because I know what my heart's like, I know how fickle it is, how prone I am to wander, and yet He chose me. That should cause us to fall on our knees and say, God, Why? God, what have I got? I have nothing to offer you. You are the God of all eternity and you want me to serve you with all of this heart that is so totally vile, that is so uh, opposed to you and yet you want me for yourself. So, wow. What a God. That should humble us. And some people would say, those who believe this position become so proud. Well, it's never done it to me because I realize who I am. I know who God is. Why? makes no sense. And yet he does it. Sovereign election humbles the believer. Sovereign election number 11 promotes fearlessness in the believer's life. Romans eight thirty one and 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There is nothing to be afraid of in this life because God has chosen you and he will do a work in you and for you and through you and for his own glory that you will reach the final destination of being with him. There is nothing to fear because of sovereign election. Number 12, we're almost there. Sovereign election produces endurance and passion in preaching the gospel. I need you to very quickly turn to Second Timothy, please. We can't skip this one. Second Timothy chapter 2. Thank you for being so patient. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8. We're talking about sovereign election producing endurance and passion in preaching the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. I love this next phrase, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I'm bound with a chain. I'm in prison where I would normally potentially be in this discouraged, disparaged place. I'm enduring all of these things passionately because I know God is using me to bring salvation to his chosen people. And so I press on, I persevere, and I'm passionate about it because this is what he's doing. He's using my life to bring about salvation for those whom he has chosen. That's what Paul is saying there. Sovereign election produces endurance and passion in preaching the gospel. Number 13. Sovereign election generates compassionate hearts, kindness and forgiveness. Colossians 3.12 says, put on therefore as God's chosen people, holy, beloved, bowels of mercy, King James says in that portion. Number 14. We already covered this. Sovereign election stimulates a heart of wonder, praise and thanksgiving towards God. Romans chapter 11. If you just quickly turn back to where we were. Romans chapter 11. You need to understand Romans 9, 10 and 11 all go together. And there are an important portion of scripture read together. But at the end of Romans 11, at the end of all of this in verse 33, this is how Paul responds. Paul responds. Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. A heart of wonder and thanksgiving. Fifteen, Number 15. Can you believe we did 15 points? Sovereign election must not diminish the Christian's responsibility as an ambassador of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 21. Let me just quote for you verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, be reconciled to God. Paul believes in this unconditional, sovereign election that God chose, and yet his heart is completely ablaze with the responsibility of preaching the gospel. So don't for a moment somehow think that this unconditional election on the part of God somehow diminishes our responsibility to preach the gospel. In fact, it impassions us. Because we have no idea who it is that God has chosen. All we know is that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so we go and preach the gospel with passion and fervor. Because some will believe. Some will believe. See, the question is not, why did God choose some and not others? The question is, why did God choose any at all? Why did God choose any? at all we close with these applications this morning almost this afternoon what should I do in response to this teaching if you're here this morning with questions about all of this Peter says confirm your calling and election is sure you know what he's saying? He's saying, be sure that you're saved. Be sure that the Spirit of God lives within you in Second Peter 1 verse 10. So one application from this is check your own salvation. And we ought to do that. Check, am I really, truly a child of God? Or am I faking it? Is this a facade? Is this about what other people think? Is this about making sure that other people think me to be that? Is this the real deal? And then we need to rejoice and be thankful that our name is in heaven and that we have been adopted. We're his. We need to trust that God is always good, that we can rely upon his sovereignty, even though we don't understand it fully. We also need to strive for holiness because that's the purpose of our election. Ephesians chapter one says you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless to the praise and glory of God to strive for holiness. And then lastly, we need to go and preach passionately the grace of God, because there is an unknown number of the elect from every tribe, nation and tongue who will respond to the gospel. What a joy. We have this privilege. We have this gift. Of the gospel, in earthen vessels, we 're unworthy, and yet this is what we 've been given. As we come to the table this morning, I would ask you to do this: simply thank God that He chose you for nothing in you but for His glory. And then the question is, am I a true reflection, therefore, of his character? Because that's what I'm striving for. That's what I'm looking. You were chosen to be like him. How's the reflection look? As you look in that glass, are you being changed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of God? Or are you saying, no, I won't? I'm I'm not remaining yielded. As we come to the table, let me encourage you for a moment to pray and be assured that as you partake, there's nothing between your soul and the Saviour. Lord, thank you so much for this incredible truth, Lord. We have laboured long this morning. and Uh, Lord, thank you for these folks who've been so gracious to me in this and such a a mammoth discussion, such a mammoth topic and, uh, Lord, so much, I'm sure, has, has been missed and so much more that could be added and I trust not too much that should be taken away. But, Lord, as we now come to this table, which is here specifically to remind us and bring us to a place of remembrance, Lord, may we think about this particular aspect of theology God's sovereign election. Lord, may we weep as we think of our own selfish, foolish hearts, so fickle and prone to wander. But may we rejoice that for some reason unbeknown to us, except that it's for your glory you have chosen us. And then, Lord, may you put within our heart a zeal to preach the glorious truth of the gospel to a world that is in need of a saviour to leave the results with you, to not be concerned about numbers, to not be concerned about memberships, but Lord, to be concerned about preaching faithfully that which you have called us to, the glorious gospel in earthen vessels, which is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.